In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you remember that book, Charlotte's Web by E.B. White? It's kind of a great childhood classic in many ways, isn't it? It's a story of a spider named Charlotte, right, who dwells in the top part of a barn uh, above a pig named Wilbur Below. You might recall Wilbur is worried that as he grows fatter, he's going to be turned into bacon, which is a pretty self-aware and astute thing for a pig to recognize as a young pig. And the story goes that they forge this unlikely friendship, remember? And Charlotte takes on this mission, really, to try to show the farmer that Wilbur is a pig worth saving. Remember, she weaves messages in her web. She tries to convince it. The story unfolds. And then the final chapter is actually entitled, A Moment of Triumph. And the pinnacle of the whole story comes in the moment of triumph, which is almost with a bit of a twist, if you remember. Um, Charlotte actually lies dying in her web, while off in the distance she hears cheers for Wilbur, who has received some prize at the county fair. And she knows that in that moment, Wilbur has his bacon saved, and he's going to be all right. And as she quietly slips away, in those moments, she's satisfied, uh, White lays forth. She'll never be remembered. No one will ever know the sacrifices she's made. No one will ever have a place to know her name. But that doesn't matter, because in that moment, she is completely fulfilled. It's a beautiful image. And it's one I'd actually like for us to dwell on as we look at stewardship this week because it pulls forward some really important themes that are worth dwelling upon. And in some cases, we have to wrestle down in ourselves when we think about both our giving and our stewardship of our lives as it pertains to the Lord. And I'd like for us to do that by looking at Acts chapter 4. If you open to it in your Bible or you orient to it on the screens, let me remind you where we've been this month. And then let's set the stage of where we are in Scripture before we just jump right into the text. Uh, On week one, uh, we looked at the theme of trust and how God entrusts to us uh, so much before he ever asks anything of us. And then Father Greg um, wonderfully and graciously pinch-hitted for me last week. You'll hear more about that perhaps next week. Um, And gave a wonderful message about our salvation and the stewardship of our lives in light of what we've been given. And this week, what I'd like for us to dwell on is the topic of trust in the local church, and I'd like for us to look at it in Acts chapter 4. But before we look at this text, um, let's give you a quick thumbnail flyby on Acts where we've been, right? Acts chapter 1, part 2. Acts is part 2 of Luke's works, right? Luke's gospel, part 1. Acts, part 2. Um, Chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. Peter gives a sermon that every preacher is envious of for all time as the Holy Spirit moves and thousands come to faith in Christ Jesus. At the end of chapter 2, we begin to see the marks of what the church looks like. Um, They met together regularly for the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Sounds familiar. Reading of Scripture, the Eucharist, supporting one another in prayer and fellowship. And then chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 are really all about these miraculous ways in which the Holy Spirit works in the lives of the early church and a little bit of banter back and forth, as you'd expect, with the religious leaders of the day. And all of it kind of culminates to this passage, which is rather peculiar, which I'd like for us to dwell on for just a few moments. 
In verse 32, after all of these things, we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's a whole sermon. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Let that sink in. The full number, this is thousands of people who believed, are unified in heart and soul. It's pretty miraculous. I mean, everything that follows is because of that. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. The full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. One heart and soul should trigger something in your brain, hopefully. Um, At least most weeks that you're here, you hear that whole love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus sums the law up. That's a tip back to Deuteronomy, as you know, in, in your biblical knowledge. And there were laws in place, even at that time, about how the Israelites would live in that relationship according to law to put safeguards so that they would live with their heart, soul, mind, and strength oriented upon God. And and that hadn't even happened fully in spite of all their efforts. And yet, here, they're unified at this inward work of the heart that God has been doing through the Holy Spirit in their midst This inward work of the heart, this unity of heart between the Holy Spirit now is being manifest outwardly. That's how it always works. We can't back ourselves into it. It has to be an inside-out sort of a job. And this is what happens. It's pretty miraculous when we read it. No one said that any things that they had belonged to them was their own, but they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. Now, before you jump where I'm not going, I'm not saying that everyone in the local church should give everything they have to the local church, and everything will be great. It's not where I'm going. In fact, where I want to point out is that for all the ideologies of the world around us, for all the structures of the world around us, the only way this can happen is because the Holy Spirit's done it. It's not under compulsion. It's not under some sort of Um, you know, manipulation. It's not under some legal system. This is a move of the Holy Spirit that has brought upon this choice that each of the believers have as to how they're going to steward what they have. And the way in which they do it is pretty miraculous. I mean, for that number of people to be unified in what they're doing in anything is incredible. But this becomes a mark early on in the church, and it's, it's pretty incredible when we think about what God is doing here as they spend these times together in prayer and worship, and God's brought about this interchange. And one historian, um, I'll put the quote before you, it's a rather lengthy quote, but it's worth it, um, noted of the early church, this is a wonderful thing, and I think a thing for us to reflect on too. Said the patient fervent of the early church, we could say, was spontaneous. It involved ordinary ingredients that at times synergies into a heady brew. The church grew in many places, taking varied forms. They proliferated because the faith of these fishers and hunters they embodied was attractive to people who are dissatisfied with their old cultural and religious habits, who feel pushed to explore new possibilities, and who then encounter Christians who embodied a new manner of life that pulled forward toward what Christians called rebirth into a new life. I think our cultural backdrop is looking increasingly like where uh, the early church was. Um, And I think people are equally as dissatisfied with the cultural and religious habits of the day. Now, 
what I would frame as the religious habits of our day are different than that day. Um, Maybe there are some cult practices, but by and large, the religious habits of our day are all these sorts of independence, autonomy, um, uh, you know, living for the weekend, for leisure, whatever we could put in that bucket. And I think the question for the church always has to be, we can't draw others away from that unless we're equally as dissatisfied in our own lives with that. That's a question we have to sit with. And the choice will always be yours as it pertains to the stewardship of the life that God has given you. But until we're that dissatisfied, when others encounter the church, if they see a different way of living, that is what draws them in. Are we as equally dissatisfied with the cultural and religious habits of our day individually? And if we are, and we live in a different way, then as people encounter us who are called Christians, they can't help be sucked in by this manner of life that is radically different than the world around them. And so that remains a choice that we have to wrestle down before the Lord. But what it can do, and what we see that it does, is often quite incredible. So let's look back at what this does in the life of the early church in verse 34. We read, there's not a needy person among them. Think about that. How many government structures, empires, kingdoms, even Rome, for all their mechanisms in their day, could not achieve that? There's no way. There's no group on earth that's been able to take care of their own holistically. And yet they're doing it here not because anyone said, you guys should go do this, but because the Holy Spirit working in their lives... And they do it in, of their own volition. They lay down lands and sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold. And then here's the kicker. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. No committees, no votes, no endless meetings, just discernment and listening to what the Lord does. Imagine that. That's incredible, isn't it? Um, I think the point that is worth dwelling upon is this. First, it's, it's totally our choice, but what happens is if we listen to the Lord, our choices in response to him will compound in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. I've seen it, and I'll tell you a story as we close about that. Um, and, and let me first say that the apostles are not me. I mean, those are the guys in the pointy hats, so don't draw correlations that are not there. Um, bishops are apostles. I'm just, you know, an under-shepherd in, in, in those ways as Greg is. So when we talk about laying things down at the apostles' feet, this is not like an ego trip. This is, this is their job. Um, what we're saying is we collectively discern these things and we do what God has given us to do. And the implications of it are pretty incredible. In fact, um, your, your draft budget this year, we're, we're looking next year to move forward um, closer to a parish goal of being a 10% parish where we ask our members to tithe, and we want to tithe off the budget beyond the walls of the church. I get calls and emails and letters um, constantly in the course of the week from frontline missionaries and organizations. I spend countless hours vetting those folks, talking to them, and, and my heart moves for wanting to do and partner with the things they're doing. If we move forward even to 5% next year, that'd be $20,000. That means you could actually support a couple of centurions. We're not covering all of our priests in Malawi right now. Um, It could mean that we could do incredible things. And I believe we could do that and even more as the Lord leads. But more than that, the spiritual principle, I think, that's at work here, as we think about what compounds is this, and and I can say it no better um, than John Chrysostom, 
perhaps the greatest preacher, next to Peter perhaps, um, in, in Christendom in 390 AD, he put it this way actually on this passage. They, the church, did not dare to put their offerings into the hands of the needy, nor give it with lofty condescension, but they laid it at the feet of the apostles and made the masters and distributors of the gift. What a man needed was taken from the treasurer of the community. So they did have treasures then, um, not from the private property of individuals, and thereby the givers did not become arrogant. He points out something really helpful. First, um, if we try to meet all the needs of the world ourselves, if you're empathetic and you're generous, you can actually do it to the detriment of yourself. On the other end, um, if we do it for the sake of our own name and glory, then it really is not for God's glory but our own. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time um, in hospitals over the past few weeks, and I mean, wings are named after people. Um, They have platinum, gold, silver, bronze, down to whatever, donors. I mean, people like to have their names places. And the church, with one exception that we'll look at in a minute, is unknown. All these people in Acts are unknown, with one exception that we'll turn to momentarily. I think that what Chrysostom points out is wonderful. It's a wonderful reminder that it's really less about the gifts. Again, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need the local church. He can do whatever he wants to do. Um, He'll pop a new one open next door if if one folds down. The kingdom will always advance. It's never in trouble. So it's not about that. But the point is that it's about our spiritual health. And that is what I think Chrysostom's pointing to. That's what we should see in Acts. And that's what I want you to hear above and beyond anything else. But here's our one exception And one point to consider in the end of this passage as we reflect upon what God can do in and through the local church. We read in verse 36, Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He's the one exception. Your Bible trivia for the day, right? Your namesake as a church is not actually named Barnabas. His name is Joseph. He's a Levite. He's of that priestly class in Israel. He's a native of Greece. And we don't see if this is all he has. In fact, Scripture doesn't say that. It just says a field. Maybe he had several fields. We don't know. What we do know is it was of, of substance, that it was enough encouragement to the early church that he bears the name of Barnabas. And before you hear anything else, it's not about the gift. It's about what happens in the giver. I think that's why he's there in Scripture for all time. Because from here, we see him pop up in Acts chapter 9 and then all through the rest of Acts, Barnabas. And what happens here in the generosity of his heart is something that then spurs him on in more ways. He's generous towards Paul when no one wants to have anything to do with Paul. He humbly lays this down at the apostles' feet and is the same guy who champions Paul before the apostles a little later on. And then he's sent out with that very guy, Paul, on missionary journey after missionary journey, and it comes because of what God did in his heart. I truly believe that. And this is, I think, something to to dwell on as well. It's not just about our choice. It's not just that our giving compounds, but it's contagious, both in us and in the community around us. Why? Because God is a generous God. And as such, um, when we move in the ways that he moves and we align with the things that he's doing, it just sparks that same level. 
I want to close with this story. Um, they are kind of our, our, our Charlotte, if you will. Um, they're only known, a family, um, to, to me and the Lord. Um, but in 2015, St. Barnabas, you may not have known this, was, was on the ropes. Um, you, you may not have had a full-time priest. You may not have had a lot of things. And as we were praying and discerning uh, where the next steps were in the immediate month to follow, let alone months to follow, um, the Lord raised up a Barnabas um, in our midst who came and made a gift. And that gift didn't just meet the immediate needs of the parish. It actually seeded growth and vision for the future. It lifted our gaze. We actually, from that, um, prayed about what to do. Um, this, this family um, didn't try to manage their gift, which is pretty miraculous. A lot of times when local folks give to local churches, we want to give a certain portion, and then we want to direct our other aspects. There's an autonomy and an individuality even in our giving. Um, and they didn't do that. They just said, you know, Lord, put it on our heart. Here, here you go. Y'all discern and pray about it. And so we did um, from that, it not only helped us get over the hump, so to speak, um, but that seeded money to build a whole uh, children and youth program over the past several years. It seeded money um, for all sorts of things. I believe that with the gift of that family, that uh, generosity really shifted and broke forth within our bunch. And that, that's only known to them in the Lord. They're kind of our Charlotte, if you will. No one, no one will know. They don't want to be known. And, and it's beautiful. And that's what God does. And I believe that because of what they did, not just them, there's, there's countless others, um, that, that the Lord spurred on some things that have kept us moving. So I want to spur you on because you are, you are a Barnabas church. You really do live into your namesake. So this is really a, a calling you higher, not a um, buckle up, buttercup kind of a sermon. This is really a God has done incredible things in the midst of this church. I truly believe he has more important things for you to do. Um, but that rests truly with you. It's your choice. Um, how you respond will compound. I've seen it. Um, and what you do is contagious, um, not just in terms of giving, but in your spiritual growth as others see it as well. So as we move into this final week uh, next week and we respond after stewardship dinners and, and look at where the Lord's leading us in the year to come, I only ask of you one thing. Just pray about it and be obedient to what the Lord tells you to do. That's all I'll ever ask. And if you do that, I know that God will cover all the rest. He always has. I stand before you having seen it miraculously for years here, and I know he'll continue to do it. So all I ever ask of you is just pray about it, listen to the Lord, and then be obedient. It's not a wise idea to ask the Lord something, get it, and not respond obediently. I've done that, and it doesn't go well. So if you ask, don't ask if you don't want an answer, um, because you want to be obedient to what he lays on your heart. And so that's all I ask of you this week. And then I ask that as you celebrate where we've been next week and we talk about where we're going next year, um, that we rejoice at what God continues to do in our namesake, St. Barnabas, who we remember this morning and who we continue to walk in each and every day by God's grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.